I'd like to read from the book of Ecclesiastes, and I'm going to be reading from chapter 11, verse 1, through chapter 12, verse 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 1, through chapter 12, verse 7. There are not that many verses to read, so I'd like for you to turn to that book and uh, hold the place there as we make our way through this sermon. Growing older is an experience that we can neither avoid nor prevent. I said that in the early service, then it dawned on me, there is a way to prevent growing older, but it's kind of final, you know, that, that one. Uh, growing older is, is an experience, is, a, is, is something that we cannot avoid, nor can we prevent. About the time our face clears up, our mind gets fuzzy. <laughs> Just about the time that we've been able to command a large enough salary to make, our, uh, make a comfortable living for our family, they're gone. Have you ever noticed that? They marry and they leave. And just about the time you have enough experience to be able to give somebody some good advice, nobody wants it. <laughs> the process of aging is something that we can neither avoid nor prevent. I want to talk to you this morning about a man who got old the wrong way. It's such a terrible, tragic story. It could have been so much different. What a way to die. Follow as I read chapter 11, verse 1. Cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. Divide your portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. If the clouds are full, they pour rain, out rain upon the earth. And whether a tree falls toward the south or toward the north, Wherever the tree falls, there it lies. There are some things, he says, that you're not going to be able to prevent. They're just going to happen, and that's the way it's going to be. He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are farmed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. Sow your seed in the morning. Seize the opportunity while you have it. Sow your seed in the morning and do not be idle in the evening. For you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed or whether bo both of them alike will be good. The light is pleasant and it is good for the eyes to see the sun. Indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them all, and let him remember the days of darkness, for they shall be many. Everything that is to come will be futility. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of your young manhood, and follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. If it feels good, do it. Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. So remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. 
Remember also the Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, when you will say, I have no delight in them. Before the sun, the light, the moon, and the stars are darkened, and the clouds return after the rain. In the day that the watchmen of the house tremble, and mighty men stoop, the grinding ones stand idle because they are few, and those who look through windows grow dim. And the doors on the street are shut as the sound of the grinding mill is low. And one will arise at the sound of the bird, and all the daughters of song will sing softly. Furthermore, men are afraid of a high place and of terrors on the road. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags himself along, and the capperberry is ineffective. For a man goes to his eternal home while mourners go about the street. Remember him before the silver cart is broken and the golden bowl is crushed. The pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel at the cistern is crushed. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to the God who made it. Here's a man who had the world at his doorstep and the door slammed. Here, here was a man who had the world in the palm of his hand, a blank check, and he blew it. And he lived for himself, and he died a frustrated, guilt-ridden man who believed vanity of vanities, all is vanity. I want you to hear this morning the throb of his heart and the pain of it. And he says, Don't make the same mistake that I made in life. If I had a chance to live it over again, I'd live my life a different way. Now from this text, there are some principles that emerge that are true today as, as then. Principles that never change. Principles that govern and bind us today who live in this century. I want to share these principles with you first. Remember that every man will give an account of his life to God. Now verse 9 in the Living Bible says it like this, It's wonderful to be young. I remember when. It's wonderful to be young. Enjoy every minute of it. Live your life to the full. Take in everything. Do everything you want, but realize that you must account to God for the way you live. Now you want that saying? It's saying you only go around once in life. Grab it with all the gusto you can. Seize life by the throat and live it. Wring every drop of pleasure and excitement out of life that you can wring out of it. But just remember that one day you'll stand to give an account of your life to an almighty God. It is not possible to fly in the face of a just and holy God and get by with it. Perhaps the greatest sermon ever preached in America was preached by a man named Jonathan Edwards. The title of the sermon is Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. 
and the sermon is filled with graphic images of the fury of a divine wrath and the horrors of an unrelenting punishment of the sinner. And there are all these graphic images of people hanging by threads over fires of hell. Now that sermon hasn't gotten rave reviews, especially in our time. It has been called sadistic, and it has been called uh, the, the product of the unenlightened age. And our thinking is along these lines is this. There is no God, or if there is perchance a God, He is not holy. And if perchance there is a God and He is holy, He is not just, or if He is just, then don't worry about it. His love and His mercy will override His holiness and His justice. And Jonathan Edwards once said, Most modern men, when he hears of hell, flatters himself that he shall escape it. But five seconds of sober thought would dispel such an error as to think that. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the seraphim and the cherubim sang. And any time you find in the Bible a word that is repeated, it's repeated for emphasis. So Jesus often said, Truly, truly, when he really wanted to say something that was significant, but you'll never find any other place where one word is used three times in succession, holy, holy, holy. Must be pretty important. You will not find this statement, God is love, love, love. You will not find this statement, God is righteous, righteous, righteous. You will find God is holy, holy, holy. For if the Bible says one thing about God, it is that He is holy. And because He is holy, He cannot even look upon sin. Because He is holy, man must give an account to Him for His unholiness. Now if there is a holy God in control of this world that sits on a throne of judgment, he must be unhappy with the way some of us live. For we fly in his face, we mock his holiness, we ignore his justice, we make light of his mercy. Now he says, young man, you go on and live like you want to live. You do everything you want to do. If you see something that appeals to you and the sensual pleasure causes you to be drawn to that, go ahead and do it. Just realize and remember that one day you will account to God for every moment of your life. Principle number one, a man must give an account to God for the way he lives. Principle number two, it is important that you get your priorities lined up and in the proper order while you're young. Remember now thy Creator in the days of thy youth. I mean, get those things which are really important, really, really valuable. Get those lined up before life has a chance to congeal and things get etched in stone, and habits get formed. Decide what is really important while you're young. While you're young, decide what has first priority. What is important to you? 
The man who wrote this passage was a wealthy man. After spending four days in Jerusalem, it certainly is evident that the most important building in the history of, evangel of, of Christian history and Jewish history, the most important building in the world is the temple. This man built it. In 1929, an institute of architects in Illinois decided they would read the Bible, try to decide if they rebuilt the temple in 1929 with the same material that they used when the temple was erected in Solomon's day, how much would it cost? They found, after doing some calculation on that, that it would cost $89 billion, with a B, to construct the temple. Now, the same institute has, still exists, and they determined that the time from 1929 to the, to the 60s that the cost of building doubled. So it would be 89 times twice, 89 billion times twice. Now, in 1984, they put some pencil to it and determined that if the temple that Solomon built was built in 1984 with the cost of materials, it would cost $500 billion. That's not counting the priestly vestments, which were jewels and, and gold, and the priestly furniture, which was worth millions of dollars, $500 billion, and that was just an infinitesimal amount of money that this man controlled. As a matter of fact, the Queen of Sheba heard about the wealth of Solomon and the power and the prestige of Solomon, and she came to Jerusalem to see for herself because she wouldn't believe it, and she made this statement you've heard quoted, the half has not been told. I've heard all these tales about this man's power and wealth and it's not half, I haven't heard half of what it's like. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. He had power and wealth and prosperity and, and status. And this passage says that he came to the process of aging and he got old and said, I have no delight in it. You know what that means? It means that if you get your priorities out of, out of focus, out of perspective, if you get those things in first place that should be in second place or third, there's coming a day when they'll have no joy in them. He means it's like a, a, a child with a toy and he's gotten tired of it and so he lays it aside and there's no fun in it anymore. Oh, the tragedy of giving our priorities to those things that when we get to that time in life, wherever it is, it may be next week for you and next month for some and 50 years for others, and you get to that point in life and there's nothing there that brings any excitement. Isn't that tragic? Frank Pollard told about a man in his church who was 82 years old. He said his life, his eyes just sparkled with life. Played tennis every day, 82 years old. This man told Frank Pollard, he said, There's, for the last 40 years I have spent at least an hour a day with the Lord Jesus. I'm here to tell you, I believe it more today than I've ever believed it, that the only way to get old with joy is to have the Lord Jesus. The only way to get old with joy is to have Him as our Lord. 
Now, what does it mean to get things in the proper perspective and in right priority? It means to view life as God views it. It means to make those things important to me that are important to Him. It means to do those things that please Him and glorify Him. It means to focus my life on Him. You better do that while you're young. While you're young. Principle number two. Principle number three. You can get better when you get older. It's all a matter of the attitude and the mind. Now chapter 12 establishes the fact that we're going to get old unless we die. He said, the sun and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. He's talking about the fact that we, our eyes get dim, our eyesight gets bad. Now as I look at my notes through bifocals, I can attest to that. When he talks about the keepers of the house trembling, he's talking about the hands that tremble with age. When he talks about the strong men stooping, he's talking about shoulders that stoop, that are bowed with the process of aging. When he talks about the grinders stopping because they are few, he's talking about our teeth coming out, you know, before the age of dentures. And when he says that we wake with the sound of a bird, he's saying that the aging process causes you to sleep with, 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 uh, with less soundly so that just the sound of a bird outside awakens you. You can, you can mark it down, face the facts. You're, the aging process has begun. But chapter 11, and it kind of goes back, chapter 11 tells us how you can get better and not older. He says it happens by two things, two ways. Are you listening? You can get better and not older if you become a generous giver. He said, cast your bread upon the waters. You know what he's saying? He's saying that the great men are the men who have learned to give. Now, he's not talking about giving money. He's talking about giving one's life. Abraham was a great man, and he lived his life to, just to help other people. He, he cast his bread upon the waters. He cast his life upon the waters. And he said, if you cast your bread upon the water, it's going to return to you. God's going to bring back the blessing of the sacrificed life. That's true. As I walked this past week where Jesus walked and stood where he stood and sat where he sat, I thought, here is a man who lived 2,000 years ago who had nothing. He didn't have a place to sleep. He had no clothes, no possessions of his own. And yet for 2,000 years, people have come by the millions just to say, I stood where he stood. I sat where he sat. I walked where he walked. A man told me that a lady that comes and follow, goes with his group has come every year for the last six years. She's going to come back every year. Charles Allen, the great Methodist preacher who is, who, who is renowned in his field, has, has, has offered many books. He could do anything he wanted to. He said, when I retire, I'm going to retire in Nazareth, the village where Jesus lived, and I'm going to spend the rest of my days just walking up and down the streets that he walked as a boy. Here was a man who had nothing not even a place to sleep, no possessions of his own, and yet for 2,000 years, thousands and millions of people have come just to adore where he was. You know why? Because he's the one man who cast his bread upon the water. 
He's the one man who lived in absolute selflessness. He's the one man who lived his life for somebody else. And God brought it back, the blessing of it. He said, become a giver and wait for, for its return. It, it, it'll come back in many days, he said. It may be that you invest your life and you'll not see an immediate return of that investment, young people. It may be that you give your life, you witness, and you see no result of that witness for a while. But if you're willing to wait many days, he promised that he'd, he'd give the investment of it. You've got to be willing to plant trees that you'll never sit under. Abraham was a great man. He, he established a nation that he never saw, a city that he never built. And yet he moved out in the faith and in the daring risk of that faith that God said, if you'll give me your life, I'll pay you back for it one day. If you'll wait, you'll see the return of it. There's a risk there. There's a wait there. God is true to His promise. How can I be better? Become a great giver. Secondly, by learning how to be adaptable and flexible. Now I need to read again verses 3, beginning at verse 3 of chapter 11. Are you with me? If the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth. I mean, if it gets cloudy and the clouds are full, it's going to rain. You're not going to stop that. He said, if a tree falls where it lies, that's where it lies. Profound, ph profound philosophy, but true. There are some things in this life that you're not going to prevent. You might as well accept. There are some things in this life that you're not going to be able to change. You might as well accept them. If you want to get old the right way, you're going to have to learn not to lash against or resist or complain about those things that you cannot prevent or you cannot change. You accept them as God's gift to you. If God gives you a lemon, make a lemonade out of it. There are some things that you cannot change. Then he said, as you learn to be flexible and adaptable, you better seize the opportunity to give your gift while you have that opportunity. Some folks make alibis. You know what an alibi is? An alibi is a sedative that a coward administers to himself in the face of a painful or difficult situation. I, I, I'm not going to do this because. I can't do this because. I can't do this because. One of the greatest alibis we use is being, is, is I'm too old. You're not. Benjamin Franklin was 80 years of age when he signed the Declaration of Independence. Michelangelo was, eight, was over 80 when he designed the drawings that went into the roof of the Sistine Chapel. And Oliver Wendell Holmes was over 90 when he was told that the Senate had cut off his Social Security, old age retirement, whatever they called it then. Somebody asked him, can you make it? He said, I think I can make it, but I won't be able to lay up any for my old age. And Norman Vincent Peale was 80 years old. When he was 80 years old, he had four offices, four businesses that he ran in the city of New York. And he was vibrant and alive because he learned to, to, to take life as it came and not chafe against it and not rebel against it. Learn to be flexible and, and adaptable. Principle number four, and I'll quit. 
This is one you're just love to hear. Death will come before you know it. Sooner than you expect. Listen to what he says. He said, the childhood, your childhood, and the prime of life are fleeting. Is there anybody here this morning who is not painfully aware of that, except these, perhaps these young people here? That childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. A couple that that went with us last week from a former church, a pastor that I pastored. Uh, good friends. I sat and visited with him on the way home yesterday, and he told me about... I'd heard that he'd been ill, and he told me about his illness. About three years ago, his mother and his father died on the same year. And his wife's mother died. Joyce was her name. His name was John. About two years ago, he lost his mother and his father, and, her, and his wife lost her mother. And then he became seriously ill, and he said, they gave me one in ten chances to live. And he said, Gerald, you know, I learned something out of that experience. He said, I learned that a lot of these things that we count important really are not that important. He said, I looked down the red, raw throat of death, and I realized that I might die at any moment. And he said, all those things that I thought were so important suddenly weren't that important. And I realized, he said, for the first time, how fragile and fleeting life is. We landed in a little town on the French Riviera, not to party, but we landed there, and an, and an event happened, an occurrence. Now, you're, we're traveling in, in, in a dangerous place, and, and you've heard the news, and so we're a little bit nervous anyway. And some Israelis on this airplane made a mistake. They didn't know they were not supposed to get off the plane. And when the plane landed, they tried to get off, and they weren't permitted to get off. And so they forced their way off. And they called in. We didn't know what was happening. We just saw all of a sudden the convergence of all these military cars and policemen around that airplane. And they got these three men out, out right out under the airplane. They were interrogating them there. And there was a lot of, you could tell, talking. And they were furious. Everybody was. We sat there and watched that for a long time. Then the announcement came. They were going to empty the plane and search it for bombs. <laughs> and they took all of our uh, baggage off and went through the baggage again while we sat on this boat, this boat, this bus secured from the rest of the things going on. You know what you were thinking sitting out there? You know what we were thinking? I defy one person in that group to tell me that he did not think, at least in a fleeting moment, this may be the end for me. And all of a sudden, it became so crudely and coldly a reality that we really don't have that much security in this life. Our childhood and the prime of our life is a frail and fragile fleeting thing. Four boys in a new souped-up hot rod 
wheeled in to a service station in a little hillbilly town in Tennessee. They had their beer, and they were, it was Saturday night, and they were going to party. And they were getting their gasoline. The service station attendant, as he put in the gasoline into the car, he was a Christian. He knew what these boys were about to do. And so he tried to witness to them, and he asked them this question. He said, what would you boys do if you knew this was the last night you'd live on earth? Well, three of those boys laughed, and they said, we'd get a keg, and we'd get a woman, and we'd party until the end came. One of those boys, the other boy, in a very serious, somber moment said, I'd become a Christian. Well, about that time, the gasoline was, the, the, the automobile was full, so the boys revved her up, and in a cloud of blue smoke and dust and gravel, they peeled out and headed out to the party. About 30 minutes later, that service station attendant became aware of some sounds, of those awful sounds of sirens and, and emergency. And he looked to see an ambulance coming from the direction these boys had been and was screaming through the town toward the hospital. And he found that they went out about four miles out of town and wrapped that car around a tree and died. I've got to ask you a question. I just have to ask it. What would you do if you knew you had one day to live? And then I've got to tell you something in all honesty. That's all you have. Would you pray with me? Father, we believe that everybody who sits in this place will one day stand before a holy God whose holiness has been ignored and violated, whose love and mercy have been resisted and given account. And we believe, Father, that some of us have placed the emphasis in life on the wrong things. And we are painfully aware today of our mortality, of the brevity of life and its volatile frailty. And we understand that if we're going to do anything, plant any seed, we better plant them now. If we're going to till, we better till while, we're, while we have the light of the day. Father, my heart's desire and prayer to Thee is that this invitation would glorify You and the Lord Jesus you gave, for it's in his name I pray. Let me ask this morning, have you ever been saved?
If you stood before God today for some and some hap, something happened and you were called to stand before God and give an account, would you be ready for it? Has there ever come that time in your life where you confessed your sin and trusted in the mercy and the grace of God for your salvation? I want you to do that today. I want you to understand that you need to plant while you have time to plant. You need to reap while the harvest is ready to reap. You need to be saved before it's too late. Is there anybody here this morning who has been placing the priorities in the wrong place? You've been giving your life's energy and commitment to the things that really don't matter. You'd like to get that lined up while you're still young and make that decision concerning a life goal that has the approval of God. Is there anybody here today who needs to make a decision at the altar of this church? Now, there are, deci- there are decisions we make in privacy and in our heart, but there are some decisions that just have to be made before men at the altar of His church. Would you feel God leading you to come as we stand for our invitation?